Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on April 14th, 2022. Our podcast today will start with an update on the macro economy from Matt Bush, our U.S. economist. He will examine the latest CPI release and analyze what he sees below the rather alarming headline number. Matt will also share his readout of the minutes from the March FOMC meeting. Also joining us for a timely discussion of asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities, and collateralized loan obligations is Karthik Narayanan, Head of Structured Credit for Guggenheim Investments, and Jared Drucker, a director and senior member of the Structured Credit team. Karthik and Jared will give us an overview of the structured credit market, how it's been responding to quickly changing market conditions, and tell us where they are finding value now. Let's start with Matt Bush. Matt, the microphone is yours. Thanks, Jay. The most notable data release over the last week was the March CPI report. Much of the commentary was focused on the headline CPI number reaching the highest year-over-year growth rate since 1981, with energy and food prices pushing up the index. But the more consequential number in terms of the outlook for Fed policy was the month-over-month core CPI number, which came in below expectations at 0.3%, when 0.5% was expected. The main driver of the downside surprise was core goods prices, which fell mostly due to the decline in used car prices. Used car prices have some further room to fall based on trends in the wholesale auction market, but we expect to see renewed pressure on other goods prices in the next several months based on the rise in commodity costs and the disruptions to supply chains caused by lockdowns in China. A more worrying dynamic in the CPI data was a continued acceleration in core services prices, which have a significantly larger weight in the CPI basket and which grew over 7% annualized in March. Going forward, we expect the sequential gains in services will cool a bit, giving leading indicators for trends in shelter prices. But services excluding shelter costs should continue to see significant pressures from elevated wage growth. So to sum up, there were a few encouraging signs in the March CPI data, and we are likely past the peak in terms of year-over-year numbers. But the trajectory for inflation remains well above what the Fed is comfortable with. Last week's speech by Fed Vice Chair Brainerd was the latest to confirm that the Fed is increasingly concerned about inflation and will act aggressively to get monetary policy to a more appropriate stance. Brainerd has historically been one of the more dovish members of FOMC, but referenced a rapid pace of balance sheet reduction and an expeditious increase in the Fed funds rate, which caused market expectations for the degree of monetary tightening to ramp up. This shift in tone from Brainerd was echoed in the release of the minutes from the March FOMC meeting. The minutes were highly focused on elevated inflation and risk that inflation could stay well above target, as well as several mentions of an extremely tight labor market. The minutes repeated the phrase that monetary policy would move expeditiously and contained a section that many participants would have voted for a 50 basis point rate hike in March if it weren't for the uncertainty caused by the outbreak of war in Ukraine. So given this language, a 50 basis point hike at the main meeting looks very likely and 50 basis point moves in June and July are more likely than not in our view. The Fed's strategy at this point is to get rates back to neutral as soon as possible and then see how far into restrictive territory they need to go 
based on how the economic and financial market data is evolving. The minutes also provided details on the plan for balance sheet runoff, which were largely as expected. Caps of $60 billion per month for treasuries and $35 billion for agency MBS will be put in place, with those caps ramping up over a three-month period beginning as soon as mid-May. A bit more surprising was the indication that outright sales of agency MBS will take place eventually, with the minutes saying that would take place after balance sheet runoff is well underway. In addition to inflationary risk from a tight labor market, strong domestic demand, and ongoing supply chain disruptions, the minutes also brought up two international factors that pose upside risk to inflation. The first is the war in Ukraine, which has pushed up energy, grains, and metals prices. The minutes indicated that upside risk to inflation from the war outweigh downside risk to growth. And with not much market-moving news regarding the war last week, and peace talks unlikely to yield a near-term breakthrough, it's likely pressure on commodity prices will continue. The second international risk factor for inflation is COVID lockdowns in China. China's new cases continue to grow, and 26 million people in Shanghai are on lockdown, with several more cities also joining in. Difficulties in transporting goods due to truck driver testing requirements are starting to limit factory production as input materials aren't being received. From a U.S. inflation perspective, computers and cell phones will be among the hardest-hit products, and these goods have already seen big price dislocations due to earlier supply chain woes. China's PMI data out last week showed a severe economic impact was already evident in the March services PMI data, which plunged to the lowest reading since the initial 2020 outbreak. The data will get worse from there based on the high frequency indicators we're tracking, adding to the complicated set of macro shocks that is putting upward pressure on inflation, but downward pressure on real economic growth. That's all I have. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Matt Bush. Next up is our discussion with Karthik Narayanan and Jared Drucker of our Structured Credit Sector team. Let's listen in. Welcome, Karthik and Jared, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, Jay. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Jay. Karthik, uh, let's start with you uh, just with some basic terms and definitions uh, for our listeners. When we talk about credit, we can be talking about two forms of fixed income, corporate credit and structured credit. What's the difference between them? Sure, Jay. Uh, the corporate credit market is probably one that uh, more investors and, and uh, more of our listeners are familiar with. And there, at a high level, investors are lending money uh, to businesses that on a typically on an unsecured basis, meaning investors or the lenders of the debt to these companies are relying upon a pledge or a promise of repayment. That's most of the time. In the case of the bank loan market, um, you know, or on rare occasion in the high yield and investment grade bond market, there's also collateral in what's called secured bonds. And so those are in addition to uh, the pledge or promise of repayment, there's also some assets that are there to help pay off the debt uh, if the company gets in trouble or under exigent uh, conditions. In contrast, structured credit is not linked to any uh, promises or pledges of any corporate entity. Instead, the technology of structured credit uses contractual cash flows as the basis for the debt. So what does that mean? You know, contractual cash flows in a, that are backing a structured credit deal could be home mortgages, auto leases, franchise royalties. These are all contract, contractual 
obligations. Now, in addition to the contractual obligations, structured credit investments also contain a pledge of assets. So in the case of commercial mortgage securities, that could be uh, you know, the mortgage itself, which is a contractual obligation, as I mentioned, but it's also the real estate. It could be cell towers. It could be intellectual property. Um, it could be um, aircraft. It could be uh, automobiles. So there's a contractual cash flows that are part of the collateral paying the investors. There's also uh, real assets. So, you know, as you can see from this short list of examples, the collateral and underlying industries uh, from these assets are very diverse. But the common linkage is that there's the technology that doesn't rely on, um, you know, sort of a general pledge or promise of an operating company, but instead uses A, contractual cash flows, and B, on a secondary basis, um, actual assets. Now, Karthik, that's, that's very clear. But one thing I want to ask you in follow-up, um, now, a corporate credit issuer carries essentially a single rating, but in structured credit, uh, the the cash flows that are paid to investors can carry different weightings, uh, ratings. Isn't that correct? That's right, and it it reflects it's something we call tranching, where a set of contractual cash flows plus the underlying assets, uh, the priority can be uh, adjusted so that the senior most lender can achieve a higher rating and a more junior lender can uh, will achieve a lower rating but commensurately uh, a higher yield. So within that um, you know, uh, trust or uh, transaction that owns these contractual cash flows as well as assets, there can be further tranching uh, to fit the market really. You know, if, if there are more investors that are um, you know, uh, inclined to make riskier investments, then the tranching will be done to emphasize and, and um, you know, create larger junior tranches or vice versa. If there are more investors in, uh, that are looking for lower risk investments, the tranching can be done to create more uh, senior tranches that are lower risk. Great. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get back to that uh, concept when we start talking about where you're seeing value. But uh, Jared, let me ask you, what are some of the different kinds of structured credit? How are they different uh, and how are they the same? Yeah, similar to what Karthik just discussed, broadly speaking, structured credit finances a pool of underlying assets. Um, when we think about the sector, there tend to be four main categories. The first is residential mortgage-backed securities, the second commercial mortgage-backed securities, the third collateralized loan obligations, and the fourth asset-backed securities. The common denominator in all subsectors is the financing of a similar pool of assets. So residential and commercial mortgage-backed securities are comp comprised of residential and commercial mortgages, while collateralized loan obligations are comprised of senior secured corporate loans. Within the asset-backed security subsector, we typically delineate between two main asset types, consumer ABS and commercial ABS. Consumer ABS is a securitization of cash flows from personal finance, such as credit card receivables, auto loans, and student loans. Commercial ABS is backed by a pool of receivables, loans, or leases from such diverse subsectors as shipping containers, aircraft lease payments, data centers, and restaurant franchise agreements, for instance. While the underlying assets can differ, most securitizations have a diversified pool of loans, leases, or other contractual cash flows, 
with many unique underlying borrowers or lessees. This diversity of, uh, of assets is incredibly important to the space, as Karth had previously discussed. Additionally, securitizations typically create multiple tranches of risk. Um, Jay, this is just what you asked, Karthik. You know, each tranche has a different risk profile and appeals to investors with different risk appetites. So when we underwrite these deals, we typically focus on the valuation of the collateral, triggers within the documentation that protect the tranche that we invest in, and the risk to cash flow projections. Given the complexity of structures and unique documentation terms within individual deals, Structured credit typically trades at a higher yield and credit spread compared to similarly rated investment grade corporate debt and can provide very interesting opportunities for those willing to do the work to understand the structural nuances. Now, I'm sure in, uh, investors look at the, the collateral when they're making their decisions and evaluating uh, you know, whether they want to be involved in that sector. But, but Karthik, there are probably other investor-friendly benefits of structured credit uh, that they're also going to be evaluating. Isn't that correct? That's right, Jay. And, you know, I would classify those, you know, the taxonomy of investor-friendly uh, safeguards, which any lender or debt holder is going to be concerned with. Because at the end of the day, you know, these are debt instruments. They're not equity. Uh, we're less concerned with the upside and more concerned with protecting downside if things do not go well and being paid appropriately for that. So I would classify them, you know, in a couple of ways. First and foremost, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, we're relying on contractual cash flows. As a second layer, we're relying on a pledge of assets. So those are two important things. The third sort of structural piece I would highlight for listeners that are, that are um, you know, digging into this sector is um, something we call bankruptcy remoteness. Um, and really what that means in non-legal speak is that the assets and the contractual cash flows I'm talking about, uh, they're not commingled on a corporate balance sheet where if the company gets in trouble, uh, the corporate lenders as well as the ABS lenders are sort of fighting over the same pool of assets. Um, they're, they're legally separate from the, you know, any corporate entity that's related to it so that in the event of a corporate bankruptcy, uh, the assets remain outside of the estate of the company and uh, remain their undivided interest to paying off the ABS. So that bankruptcy remoteness is sort of another important aspect on top of this um, contractual cash flows and pledge of assets. The other, the other investor safeguard that's sort of intrinsic to this sector is, um, you know, diversity. And diversity, there's sort of a double-barreled element to this diversity. One is asset class diversity. Jared sort of took you around the four major food groups, you know, ABS, uh, CLOs, CMBS, and RMBS. Those are all distinct asset classes. What affects the ups and downs of commercial real estate, uh, you know, are not automatically going to create the same ups and downs in a data center ABS or in, uh, you know, a maritime container-backed ABS. So intrinsically within these sectors, there's a, a good deal of diversity. The, the second sort of layer of diversity is, you know, what I would think of as intra-pool diversity. So within an asset class, there's further diversity. So you could argue, hey, you know, uh, the, the risk effects on, uh, you know, uh, the bank loan market will affect all CLOs. And that's a fair, that's a fair point. However, within each CLO, there's another layer of diversity, meaning that that CLO is backed by, you know, 150 plus individual companies in, you know, two dozen sectors. So although the, the, the ebbs and flows of the overall economy will affect all 
um, you know, bank loan borrowers to some extent, there's another layer of diversity. So there's sort of two layers of diversity I'd, I'd point to as well. Um, and then, and then finally, kind of drilling a little further into the uh, individual securitized deal structures, um, there's something else we would call over collateralization. So over collateralization simply means that there is more asset value than there are bonds to pay. So um, you know, if you think of the source of cash and the source of value being the asset in the structured credit transaction, whether that's mortgages or um, you know, auto leases or aircraft leases or what have you, there's more sources of cash than there are uses of, of, of that cash from an asset value standpoint. Now, over collateralization is, is, a, is a balance sheet or a stock concept where we're looking at the value of the assets versus the principal of the debt or the, the sort of face value of the liabilities. But it also gives rise to this sort of second order um, you know, flow or income statement protective concept called excess interest or excess spread. So what that means is that um, there's more dollars of interest being created by the assets than there are dollars of interest being paid to the ABS note holders. So where do those extra dollars go? They can go to offset losses, um, you know, and or be rediverted in, in the event of a you know trigger uh, a breach, which I'll talk about in a minute. But the fact that there's extra money in the deal um, and that it can be redirected to offset losses is another, uh, you know, not as robust as over collateralization, but it's another investor safeguard. Um, there's also this concept of tranching, Jay, that you touched on earlier, where if uh, you know a given ABS deal can consist of senior notes that are perhaps rated AAA or single A or double A, and then more subordinated notes that might be investment grade or even non-investment grade or non-rated. And there's an element of investor protection in that tranching because if you're an investor in say a triple B tranche, uh, the tranches below you, so perhaps the double B rated tranche or single B rated tranche or um, an unrated subordinate tranche, would need to, need to take a hit before you do. So there's another sort of element of payment priority that comes in to benefit um, inter, uh, investors. And then, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the final uh, piece to this is that deals do contain tests and triggers that monitor the performance of the collateral and can redirect some of these extra dollars that I'm calling excess spread to pay down the more senior lenders before the more junior lenders or the equity in the event that performance is not up to par. So, you know, kind of recapping, uh, you know, the, the legal separation, the assets cons consisting of contractual obligations, asset class diversity, intra pool diversity, over collateralization, excess spread, tranching, and tests and triggers. It's a long list, but uh, you know that that's kind of why why we're here every day is to to go through this and make sure we understand what the investor protections on or any given deal. Hey, Jared, uh, Karthik mentioned earlier bankruptcy remoteness. Could you give us an example of what that means? Uh, yeah, Jay, I think uh, it's a really interesting point for us to discuss. So, uh, you know, I think if you take an example, maybe something concrete that people have dealt with, uh, you know, rental cars when you're traveling, um, something that is, you know. People are familiar with. Let's say that you're a rental car company and uh, you're a corporate entity that issued corporate debt as well as uh, debt collateralized by the loans of the uh, rental agreements as well as the car uh, individual car collateral. Um, 
in this example, you know, we've already been through a volatile period in 2020 with COVID where travel was shut down. Um, less people were uh, renting cars. Um, everyone was sheltering in place. And so as a result, this company might experience stress at the corporate level. Um, if that company enters into bankruptcy, as an ABS investor, you still have a direct claim to both the contractual lease agreements on the cars, as well as the cars themselves. And so in that example, the corporate entity might, be, might go bankrupt, but you still have the ability to claim the collateral and then sell that collateral, the collateral being the rental cars, to pay down your debt. Well, thanks for that, uh, that you know, tutorial, uh, if you will, the ABCs of ABS uh, to start off our conversation. But let's get to the, how the market's doing right now. So, um, so Karthik and Eric, please give us a short tour of market activity that you're seeing for structured credit products. What broad themes are you seeing nowadays for the market as a whole? For example, what are you seeing in terms of issuance and spreads? Sure, I can start, Jay. I, you know, at a high level, We've been through some pretty unprecedented times. Onset of the COVID pandemic, the central bank and sort of governmental response, economic recovery, um, recovery in the real economy as well as financial markets, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, pivoted Fed policy, all within the span of two years. Um, but sort of rolling that all together as far as where we sit today, this period of um, fundamental change has created winners and losers, as it has in other markets, it's certainly true in the structured credit market. And the market, in terms of primary market activity, has been functional, and the market is open for you know, the, quote, winners. Um, and uh, you know, the other thing to think about here is with the change in sort of monetary outlook and the market sort of pricing that, um, it's changed the shape of the yield curve and the expectations for interest rates. Uh, you know, that's also playing into some of the dynamics we're seeing in terms of higher credit spreads and, and overall yields. But I think from a 10,000 foot level, um, you know, the market is open um, and, and movements in, in structured credit in general have been fairly orderly. Yeah, and I think, Jay, to Karthik's point, I mean, everyone is aware of the macro volatility that we've experienced over the last two months. But despite that volatility, structured credit prices have proven to be resilient. On the primary side, issuance across ABS subsectors has been steady, with overall issuance on the quarter up roughly 10% from this point a year ago. On the CLO side, although we're coming off of a historically large year of issuance, issuance this year is down versus this time last year, but we're generally in line with first quarter issuance from 2018 and 2019. While issuance has been steady, and as Karthik discussed, the market is open, what we are seeing is a shift in the way that deals are marketed, with issuers now opting for certainty of execution in lieu of longer, more broadly syndicated marketing periods. Uh, you know, to benefit our, our clients and our accounts, this has allowed end accounts such as ourselves to dictate modest structural protections and higher spreads in exchange for a guaranteed quick execution. And, certainty of execution amidst a really volatile macro backdrop, both in terms of macroeconomic data, uh, as well as um, volatile interest rates. We expect to see a continuation of this theme into the second quarter. If I move now to the secondary side, there has been a bit of a di divergence between floating rate and fixed rate performance. 
Floating rate assets, such as corporate CLOs, have held in well despite the overall market volatility. Credit spreads are marginally higher, with total return year-to-date down roughly 30 basis points on single-A and higher-rated bonds. Longer-duration assets, such as conduit CMBS, which typically has a 7- to 10-year duration profile, and select esoteric ABS subsectors, such as whole business and container transactions, which are also generally 5- to 10 years uh, in duration, have done worse due to the longer interest rate and spread duration exposure. These sectors are being hit by a combination of wider credit spreads and higher benchmark interest rates. As an example, conduit CMBS seniors, which are AAA rated and at very low risk of principal loss, are down 9% on a total return basis over the last three months. Despite the negative total return, structured credit has generally outperformed comparable rated corporate benchmarks over the last quarter. The total return on the JP Morgan CLO index is negative 13 basis points, and the total return on the BAML ICE ABS index is negative 4%, while the return on the Bar- Bloomberg Barclays Intermediate Corporate Index is negative 5.6% over the same period, the last quarter. While overall performance has been resilient, there have been some sectors that have experienced some uneven demand on the primary side. And just to add to that, some of those examples we see in structured credit that have sort of um, you know, underperformed their other structured credit peer groups some of them have, um, you know, some fundamental issues, but others of them, it's just a supply issue. So if we look at certain parts of the um, non-agency residential mortgage market, um, there was a lot of issuance done in 2021 when mortgage rates were much lower. And we see that, you know, as that issuance has sort of made its way into securitization, um, you know, at a time when the market is experiencing higher volatility, uh, the credit spreads on those bonds have progressively moved wider. So this isn't a move wider precipitated by concerns on fundamentals. Um, you know, if we look at the non-QM or non-qualified mortgage market or even the prime jumbo market in non-agency RMBS, we see that there's been kind of a supply glut uh, or an or a overhang from the end of last year, and that's creating some dislocation in those markets that have sort of underperformed the broader benchmarks that, that Jared mentioned. So there's there's some dislocations within our markets as well that we're certainly, uh, you know, keeping tabs upon. And Jay, I think also, you know, we've discussed the nuances within the sector, um, structured credit as a whole, but it is important to note that, you know, we look at both primary and secondary and we can tactically move between the two. Um, and so while prices have been resilient, you know, there have been pockets of opportunity that um, we've been able to um, capitalize on as Karthik has just discussed. And that comes from monitoring both primary and secondary, as well as trading across asset classes um, within the structured credit space and thinking about value holistically. Well, this is great. Um, we'll, we'll get back to some of those opportunities in a minute. But Karthik, I want to step back for a moment um, and just kind of think about where we are right now. You know, just We've had two years of very accommodative monetary policy, but things are changing rather quickly um, with uh, monetary policy uh, and rate hikes and um, quantitative tightening on on the agenda. How is how is this change in Fed policy uh, going to drive performance and relative value for structured credit? Sure, you know the real direct impact is going to be in terms of level of rates and the shape of the yield curve. Um, you know, and, and sort of those big picture portfolio positioning issues are going to be impacted more directly or have been impacted. I think we've all 
seen a pretty dramatic uh, move in interest rates over the last few months, only rivaled by the you know taper tantrum of 2013. So I, I think all fixed income investors are uh, duly sensitized to the impacts um, on fixed uh, duration, uh, or sorry, fixed coupon uh, positive duration bonds. Now, as far as structured credit specifically, um, it, it kind of flows in more indirect ways. I think the first channel is, you know, if you step back and think of, um, you know, the primary issue uh, markets, that is where investors in structured credit uh, deploy capital most efficiently because uh, that's where, where the larger trades happen, which is a new issue. With rates moving higher as they've, they have in response to both inflation and, you know, sort of the forward path of short-term rates, uh, uh, you know, policy rates, um, that reduces the scope for refinancings of existing deals. So already, this is something we've seen in the CLO market as well, where higher credit spreads have sort of curtailed some of those refinancing opportunities. But then higher all-in yields, when you look at fixed rate bonds, such as, um, you know, whole business ABS and, and other parts of that market, there's fewer opportunities to refinance. So, you know, first off, lower supply. Um, I think the second impact from, from a more big picture macroeconomic point of view of where we are in the tightening cycle is that, um, you know, at, at this point where there is a lot of steepness to the front end of the yield curve, this does tend to be technically a constructive time for floating rate assets. And in our world, that is primarily, uh, you know, corporate CLOs and also commercial real estate CLOs. So those are you know, sort of the, the more uh, larger floating rate markets that we tend to look at. Um, there's also a lot of floating rate ABS assets in the uh, consumer ABS market. Uh, we don't view the relative value there to be particularly attractive relative to commercial ABS, and it's not something, um, you know, we're spending a lot of time emphasizing right now. But in general, floating rate assets should see investor support, which should, um, you know, be supportive of credit spreads and credit spread driven total return. Um, you know, the last thing is, you know, if you look, if you, if you think about the performance of credit assets in general through an economic cycle, we are at, at still at a point that, um, you know, history would suggest and our macro team would also suggest is still going to be somewhat, uh, you know, of a constructive tailwind for uh, credit assets. And we're not so late in this cycle um, you know, that, that we need to start to be concerned about negative performance there. So, you know, uh, fundamentals have created winners and losers, as I've said before, but this sort of nexus of macro volatility, monetary pivot, um, and sort of COVID recovery, um, you know, is, is offering investors higher credit spreads and higher yields, uh, you know, for the assets that are performing similarly as they were maybe 12 months ago and are likely to continue to benefit from the sort of unprecedented amount of liquidity pumped into the system in the last two years before we see the, the sort of policy tightening flow through into the very late stage environment that we thought we were in, you know, in 2019 when no one has even heard of COVID, but the cycle was still pretty late, where you want to be de-risking. So we still view credit from a top-down standpoint as a, as a good place to be, but we, I think we're also cognizant that this runway doesn't go on forever. Now, has the war in Ukraine affected any particular sectors of the uh, structured credit market? Yeah, it has, Jay, to some extent. Uh, as we discussed earlier, structured credit is typically comprised of diverse assets. But in general, most of those assets are located in the United States. So while there are some impacts from the war in Ukraine, they tend to be more second and third order, broadly speaking, 
although there are some instances of first order impacts. The most immediate and obvious impact has been in the aircraft space, where Russia represents roughly 5% of the global leased aircraft uh, by our estimation. There has been some rapid price volatility in aircraft ABS deals that have any exposure to Russia. In general, those deals are down roughly 10 points from the highs of 2021 and are now trading in the low $90 price. While these dollar price moves are large, trading has generally been orderly and range bound. Uh, if you compare this to the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we saw a much different response within the market, within the aircraft space specifically. Obviously, broadly speaking, there was quite a bit of trading volatility at that point. But on a comparison basis, in 2020, when aircraft travel was restricted um, and we were sheltering in place, prices gapped down much quicker with limited uh, end account buying to clear that risk. Um, during that period, first lean aircraft traded into the hot, traded, started in the high 90s and ended up trading down into the low 70s by the end of uh, March and the beginning of April. Um, you know, at that point, you know, we saw roughly 20 to 30 point declines in first lean prices. Uh, and there was limited buying. You know, we were one of the accounts that was buying on the other side of that. Uh, but if you compare that to what we're seeing today, you know, there's consistent two-way flow and deals that have exposure to Russia. This is a situation that we're monitoring, and it's the most obvious impact to our ABS portfolio. In terms of second-order impact, we are tracking commodity price pressure very closely. With respect to the war in Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine are large exporters of wheat, barley, corn, and fertilizer. For restaurant concepts, the impact of baked goods, such as being as Buns, um, you know, for you know, uh, concepts such as Wendy's or um, Arby's would be relatively low, you know, roughly six to eight percent of the cost of goods sold. But the larger impact could be on feedstock, and you know, that will be seen over time. Uh, you know, as as Karthik discussed, credit selection will be important here, as some concepts have more pricing power than others, and we expect uneven performance in the space over the next year. So certainly there are headwinds, um, there are impacts to Russia, but the, the war in uh, Ukraine. Um, but I'd say as a whole, you know, we are going to see some uneven performance, and so credit selection will be paramount over the next year. So uh, it, both of you have mentioned in various ways uh, things like uh, you know winners and losers and opportunities as some some uh, securities have weakened in price. Uh, you know, the floating rate's pretty strong, but if I could have them in, in one in one answer, uh, where are you finding value right now in the market? Sure, Jay. Maybe we can sort of just go around the around the major food groups. You know, starting with um, uh, corporate CLOs. Um, you know, this market uh, continues to see fairly normalized issuance, and our fundamental outlook for uh, corporate defaults. Is that uh, you know we should still see a below historical average kind of environment in the near term. So in CLOs, that doesn't sort of invite us to be at our maximum risk point, but we do think in the uh, sort of upper investment grade part of the capital structure in both CLOs backed by broadly syndicated loans as well as uh, smaller companies or middle market loans, that that part, uh, the sort of single A and higher um, part of the capital structure. Uh, still provides a good balance of a spread pickup um, relative to similarly rated corporates, as well as a high degree of credit enhancement that will give us sort of stable through a cycle performance 
um, with a modest, uh, you know, mark-to-market volatility profile that we would obviously be sensitized to in an environment like this. So good, good sort of income um, and, and sort of uh, low duration profile given the floating rate nature and, and shorter uh, sort of intermediate average life. So that's CLOs. Um, moving to um, the uh, CMBS or commercial mortgage-backed securities market, this market's a little tough right now. I think some of the less liquid parts of the market that we have focused on, such as uh, transitional loan-backed deals or what we call commercial real estate CLOs, um, that's a market that we think has offered good value. The issuance there is really, uh, has really uh, tapered down um, you know, into this recent volatility, but it's a market we do uh, keep close tabs on. Um, and also selected single asset uh, deals, you know, that have sort of attractive leverage profiles. But th- that market's a little tougher, a little tougher right now. Um, you know, in residential mortgage-backed securities, credit performance, fundamental performance has been very good. Um, you know, we think the best bet there is um, sort of like CLOs being in the investment grade part of the capital structure, where we believe we're picking up, um, you know. Uh, uh, market technical dislocation as opposed to real fundamental dislocation. In that market, we do also have a a bent towards some of the more credit-sensitive areas, such as the old pre-financial crisis RMBS, as well as re-performing loans. Uh, But those are very small markets, and and there's a a limit to how much uh, sourceability there is. Um, I think uh, being a regular participant in that market um, allows one to um, see and and be exposed to interesting deals that come along, um, but but that we view the RMBS market as continuing to have some credit upside, and so some of those more credit sensitive parts of the market, such as reperforming loans, et cetera, look interesting to us as well. Um, ABS is a little bit more fragmented, and uh, you know there, there's some parts of that market in whole business and infrastructure uh, that Jared can uh, kind of run us through our focus areas. Yeah, I mean, I think in that sector, you know, you're able to pinpoint an interesting part on the yield curve, um, given the flattening of the treasury curve. You know, the in, the value in commercial ABS, in my mind, is you know wider spread product in that five to seven year part of the curve um, that will roll down over time and have less spread durations. So, you know, for context, we had top tier QSR transactions such as Wendy's or Duncan trading into, you know, below 100 at one point on a spread basis. And now you can buy those securities 50 basis points wider, plus we have the significant movement in rates. And so from an all-in yield perspective, you know, you're talking about four to five percent type securities that have five to seven year duration. If you compare that to similarly rated at uh, IG corporate debt, you know, the pick versus that type of alternative is going to be pretty high. And so I think that's an interesting part of the curve. Um, but, you know, as we discussed with the section on Ukraine, there will be some headwinds. And so it will be important to pick credit there. Um, but that is generally the case in, in the commercial ABS space. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of territory, uh, and it's clear that you guys have to be watching over um, a very wide part of the economy uh, through your securities. But before we wrap up, is there anything else uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Anything that I haven't asked you? 
You know, Jay, uh, I certainly appreciate taking the time to sit down and talk about these markets today. I, I think some of the other materials we have up on the website, such as the ABCs of ABS or, uh, that you referenced also are, are kind of a good background material on some of these more technical uh, points to those of our listeners that are interested in that. And then the other thing I would just mention is, and kind of reflecting on this as we're, as we're talking here, uh, you know, these markets are complicated and, and sort of, uh, you know, structured credit is intrinsically complicated and investing in fixed income is also intrinsically complicated. And, you know, none of us would, would uh, be here if it were not for the trust that our clients put in us to sort of, you know, in addition to our own intellectual curiosity and professional interest to sort of continue to, to understand the risks and the opportunities and, and try to put together uh, reasonable portfolios on a, on a risk-adjusted basis. So, I'd be remiss not to uh, acknowledge that as the the reason that we get to do this every day. So, uh, uh, you know, would add that as well. Well, Karthik and Jared, thank you guys so much for uh, taking time out of a, you know what's a very busy time for you. Uh, we really appreciate it, and uh, I hope that you'll uh, come back and visit with us soon. Thanks, Jay. It was great speaking to you. Thanks, Jay. My thanks once again to Karthik Narayanan, Jared Drucker, and Matt Bush. And thanks to all of you who joined us for our podcast today. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership and videos, including the CIO Outlook by Scott Minard, our global CIO, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. Best wishes for a happy Passover and a happy Easter to all. So long. Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice 
and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial, tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the following affiliated investment management businesses. Guggenheim Partners Investment Management LLC, Security Investors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Investment Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Corporate Funding LLC, Guggenheim Partners Europe Limited, Guggenheim Partners Fund Management Europe Limited, Guggenheim Partners Japan Limited, GS Gamma Advisors LLC, and Guggenheim Partners India Management.